So I'm starting a short series this morning. I don't know if you knew this, but next week is Easter. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And so, by the way, there's notes in the back if you want them. Uh, if you're online with us this morning, first of all, welcome. But also, in the video description, you should see a link to some notes. Um, if you'd like to follow along. You don't need the notes if you don't want them. I'm not a notes guy when I'm listening to sermons, but some people are. So that's there for you. So what we're talking about this week and next week is um, being raised with Christ and what that means. That's a crazy theme in the New Testament. I mean, it's everywhere. In fact, if you just search your Bible, if you go online like Blue Letter Bible or whatever Bible you want to use online where you can search for things and just search for the words in Christ, you get over 73 references just in the New Testament. And if you add to that, which you should, variations like with Christ, like different prepositions, with Christ, to Christ, through Christ, you get like well over 100, it's like 130 some references. It's almost on every page. And it's certainly with Paul's writing, it's the, it's the way he, it's the grid through which he interprets everything in life. Whenever Paul gets asked something, he's, he's coming from this perspective, okay? So it's just, and Paul wrote most of the New Testament. It's everywhere. It's absolutely vital, and it's incredibly deep and mysterious. I, hopefully, I won't make it too simple, but my gross oversimplification is, what am I saved from? Two questions. What am I saved from, and what am I saved so that's where we're going we're gonna to really focus on that theme next week. But this morning, I'm just looking at, focusing mainly on the first question, what am I saved from? But I can't help it, I'm going to get into what am I saved to, because it's just bad news if it's just what am I saved from, right? Both questions are answered by looking at this phrase, in Christ. So there's, let's define this to start with, because like I said, it's a deep end of the pool, all right? There's the idea of union with Christ or raised with Christ or in Christ, however you want to express it, has two ideas, two main parts, participation with Christ and union with Christ. Just remember those two words, participation and union, okay? And as you'll see, these two ideas are close in meaning, but they have some important differences. The result of our union and participation with Christ is enormous, and you will spend eternity working it out, okay? We will not completely work it out in two sermons. However, I'll give you a list. You have location, identification, incorporation, and eschatology, and I'll define those later, but let me put it in a sentence for you. Participation and union with Christ eternally establishes your location in the kingdom of God, your entire identity, both physical and spiritual, your incorporation into the church, and your future resurrection at the second coming of Christ as a present reality right now. And that's really deep, that your future resurrection is actually a present reality now. So what do I mean by participation? We're going to focus on participation in union this week, and we'll do the kind of the results of your unity with Christ next week, where you're just going to, going to want to, your mind is just going to want to explode with worship at what God has promised you in Christ. But that word participation, it strikes me as English speakers, we tend to get confused between participation and cooperation. Those two words, they're not the same thing. By participation, I mean that you participated in the death and resurrection of Jesus, meaning you were present. You were there. 
like really were there. I do not mean that you cooperated in some way like you met him halfway or earned some portion of what he did on the cross. Okay, that's not what I mean, participation. I just mean that you were there. So let's start in Romans 5. Just start in the deep end of the pool. So a little background, because I'm not going to read the whole chapter. But the background to Romans 5 is Paul is giving, I think, his most developed explanation of the connection between Adam and Genesis and Jesus in the New Testament. There he compares Adam over against Jesus. And you can read the whole chapter um, on your own and see all the comparisons he makes. But Adam was one man who brought sin into the world. And we were born in Adam. When you uh, came out of your mother's womb, you were born in Adam. Everything that Adam had, and including his sin, was yours. Congratulations. Thanks a lot, Adam, right? We're born in Adam, and therefore we are born in sin, which leads to death, and death of the body and death of the soul. Death exists because of Adam. And you're born in that state. You're born a slave to that. Now, you may say, that seems incredibly unfair. I don't like it. I reject that idea. Well, you can reject it all you want. It's still true. Now, the nice thing about, we're going to see in just a second when we read Romans 5, there's good news with that idea. It's not just bad news, but you need to understand that the reason you are the way you are in terms of your brokenness and your waywardness and your proclivity towards particular sins is because way up the line, Adam brought sin into your DNA, into who you are, and you are born enslaved to that. Okay, look at verse 17 to 21 in Romans 5. He says, For if, because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men, that's Jesus. Verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So everyone's born a sinner. It's who you are. So it's not just something you do. It's not just an external thing outside of you. And sometimes you're good and sometimes you're bad. You were born a sinner. It is who you were, a slave to it. And then you have lived in a way that confirms that identity, haven't you? Don't, don't raise your hand. It's true for everybody. You've confirmed it. Not only were, were you born in sin, you then sinned. Okay? And you sinned against God. And you can't have it both ways. You can't have, I don't want to be born in Adam, but I do want to be born in Christ. So Romans 7, 7 through 21, I'm not going to read it, says that the law shows us what sin is and condemns the sinner for it. In effect, sin is the murderer. The law is the murder weapon and you're dead as a doornail. The law says, 
just like laws now, like if I speed, I, whether there's a law that says don't speed or not, I'm still going the speed I'm going. However, the law, the police officer pulls me over. Have you ever noticed there's just no budge in the law? They have a specific number you're allowed to go, and it's posted on the side of the road. And that number is what that number is. It doesn't change based on how fast you're going. It's not like when you hit 75 miles an hour, the speed limit changes to 75. The speed limit is still 55. And this is what the police officer reminds you of when he pulls you over. He says, I am, I am the law. <laughs> right? I'm the law. And I'm here to remind you of the law. You broke the law, and there's just there's no denying it, right? That's what the law does. It's the same way with the law of Moses. It killed you. Dead. No excuse. God's law shows that no one is righteous and no one has an excuse. That's the first three chapters of Romans. No one is righteous. No, not one. If you end, if you stop reading Romans at the end of chapter three, it's despair time. And you don't keep reading. Because it's just like no one has an excuse. That's Romans 1. We, we just, we, we've traded worship of God, worship of the Creator, for worship of created things like a bunch of numbskulls. We have God Himself, glorious, holy, wonderful God, the Creator of all things, nothing better, nothing greater. He's the, the ultimate of ultimate things. And we're, he's saying, I've made a way for you to worship me. We say, no thanks. I'll worship this little thing I made. This little trinket. It makes me happy. It'll save me. There's no excuse. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. There it is again, in Christ Jesus our Lord. By the end of this, you will learn to note when you see in Christ in your Bible it's everywhere the wages of sin is death the free gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus our lord in adam you're both guilty and condemned without excuse you're guilty for sinning you're condemned by the law and you're without excuse because you knew it was wrong this is the death that adam gives you as your inheritance thanks a lot adam adam is just gonna have to stand there in heaven and get berated for the first hour I don't, you know every everybody gets there and finds adam right and it's like dude what you do but here's the thing we all would have done it don't think if you were if i was adam <laughs> you're right well i wouldn't have lasted nearly as long as adam lasted so let's go look look at uh second corinthians 5 14 to 17 and verse 21 it says for the love of christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. That should sound familiar now that we read Romans 5. One has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 14 is amazing. 
It says that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Both instances of the word died are the same past tense, implying that they happened at the same time. Think about this for a minute. Though we were not present at the cross in any kind of concrete historical sense, I did not travel back in time, a time machine, and land there and climb up on the cross of Jesus. However, we were in fact crucified in the same moment that Jesus was. That's what this verse says. You were there. You were there on the cross with him. That's what it means to be in Christ. In a real sense, as far as God is concerned, you were there and you died. Jesus didn't just die for you. We've got to stop saying that. I think it's wrong. Jesus died in your place as you. That's deeper. Jesus didn't say, I'll just take your punishment. He did take your punishment, but he paid and carried the full weight of your sin. Every single trespass for which you had no excuse whatsoever, he died as it is as if you paid for it yourself. In the record in heaven, it will show that you paid for your sin. Done. You died with Christ. That's just crazy. And but what is true for his death is also true of his resurrection. Now that's good news. So you're not, see, if there was no resurrection and you just died with Christ, you'd be right where Adam was right before he sinned, right where Eve was, right before she sinned. Blank slate, full of potential, but totally going to screw it up any second. You're totally going to. You didn't just get back to some kind of zero space where God wiped off the chalkboard and cleaned out your record and say, try again. That is not what happened. Jesus died as you, but then you were raised with him. You were, you were raised out of the grave. We sang it this morning. Like That's just not a fun metaphor for being saved. That's like really what happened. He called you out of the grave. When Jesus stood up and walked out and made the tomb empty, you did too, right there with him. That means you have his righteousness, that from that moment forward, your sin isn't counted against you. No matter how far you walk away from him, you're still in him. That's crazy. I'm getting ahead of myself. I don't know where I am anymore in my notes. So look, God isn't offering do-overs and second chances. That's a really worldly idea. He's offering an entirely new existence, living in unity with Christ. That's what it means to be a new creation. You're not just a new creation that's exactly like the old one. <laughs> try again. Let's dust yourself off. Try again. Well, I'm pretty sure at this point, I'm 46. I've learned maybe one thing in 46 years, and that is I am totally going to screw this up. Every time. Every time God says, okay, let's have a do-over, I'm just going to fall on my face again. This is the pattern of my life. 
I don't boast in that. I boast in Christ, that I'm in him. I'm a new creation. I look like Jesus, not because of my awesomeness, but because of his. I died with him. I died on the cross with Jesus, and I, raised, I was raised on the third day with him, and I looked like him because I have been recreated to be like him. This is profound mystery. That's why it's so silly when we present Christianity to the world as though it's this system of morality and ethics. Like, be like us because we know how to do things. We know how to act. So be like us. And then what do we do? We fall on our faces, and the world looks at us and says, well, that's no good. I can do that. I can do that without all the religion stuff. And what we fail to teach them is that, no, 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 this is something else entirely. Yeah, you're going to act right, but the reason you're going to act right is because you've been recreated to be like Jesus. You, you, you're no good. Your model is defective. It needs to be put down, killed, dead, gone, never to breathe again. Forget it. Stop trying to fix it. Stop trying to polish it on the outside and pluck the eyebrows and you know, trim everything and clean everything and make it all look presentable because it's not. It's broken and defective and God just wants to finally put it down. Sin is the murder or the law is the murder weapon and you just need to die and be remade. No do-overs. You need to be reborn. That's what Jesus said, right? You must be born again. <laughs> you, just, you just need to go away and just new, new DNA, new Jesus DNA. So that's participation. Okay, what about this idea of union? You'll see it's close, but it's not the same. One of the most striking union with Christ, there's so many, it's killing me um, not to go into all of them. But one of the most striking union with Christ scriptures in the Corinthian letters is also the most brief. I love this. 2 Corinthians 11.2 says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul's using betrothal and marriage as a metaphor for our connection to Christ. It gets weirder. But just think about that for a minute. Paul's saying like our relationship with Jesus is like being married to Jesus. Make you a little uncomfortable? Oh, I'm about to make you even more uncomfortable. Well, Paul is. Paul and John Calvin, not me. Look at this, Ephesians 5, 29 to 32. We missed this because in these verses right before this, we have all the stuff about women submitting to their husbands and we get bent over that, and then we miss this verse, which is far deeper and more profound. Look, so I'm going to skip all that stuff so you don't get thrown off the bus. All right, look at verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But then look what he says, verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
Paul combines the body metaphor with the body of Christ with the marriage metaphor to create a striking picture of our union with Christ. It's uncomfortably striking. I'm going to read you a quote from John Calvin who said, The strong affection which a husband ought to cherish towards his wife is exemplified by Christ. And an instance of that unity which belongs to marriage, he's using really coded words, is declared to exist between himself and the church. This is a remarkable passage on the mysterious intercourse we have with Christ. I told you you're going to get uncomfortable. As uncomfortable a word as intercourse is in that quote, I debated using it, okay, for a while. But I think the discomfort we feel over that, and we can push that word too far, and I'm not going to, okay? But I think that's what Paul's on about here. That's what he's talking about. He's trying to give us human beings some kind of metaphor for how intimate we are with Jesus, how close he is, how near he is, how unified with him that we are. And he's thinking, okay, what's the most intimate thing a human being has? And that's what he says. It's like that. Okay. Does that make it a little less weird? (laughs) It's like that. It's safe to say that you are inseparable from Christ and there is no greater union to be had with him than what you already have. You're one flesh. You're the same person. Completely melded together. You can't be unwoned. That's why divorce is such a thing, such a terrible thing. It's because it you ever try to be unwound from someone, there's some ripping and tearing and breaking that happens because you've been made one. If you've been divorced, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's no, it doesn't matter how nice it was, how friendly the divorce was, there's still a ripping that happens. And so it becomes a perfect metaphor for our relationship with Christ. We have been unified, we have been made one. You can't, there's no losing that. There's no, no, no discarding that. There's no, that this, you can't lose him. You've been unified with him. Not because of your awesomeness or because your greatness or your great faith. You've been unified with him because you died with him and you were raised with him. It's because of what he did. These doctrinal truths about being unified with Christ is not just a metaphor about being relationally close to Jesus. It's a concrete reality. You didn't meet him halfway. Dead people don't meet people halfway. (laughs) That old you is dead. And you say, I know, the question is, well, why do I act like this? Why do I do the things I do? Why do I go where I go? Why do I think the way I think? I don't think I think like Jesus very often. Well, that's what we call sanctification. We're going to deal with that a lot next week. That's where we need the Holy Spirit, who is the one who binds us to Christ and keeps us in Christ and affirms us in Christ and grows us to be more like Christ. But let me just say this. You are becoming what you already are. That is the mystery of the Christian faith. God has declared you to be all these wonderful things in Christ. You have participated with him. You are unified with him. You are as close to him as you could ever be. You cannot get closer to Jesus than you are right now. You cannot. 
is impossible. You are, at, you are completely close. However far close is, that's where you are, right? There's no, and there's no love or affection or redemption being held back from you whatsoever. It is all yours in Christ, every last bit of it. And nothing you do can change that. But the, one of the wonderful things about being in him is that he is training you right now through discipline and through conviction of the Holy Spirit, through trials and testing and through the community of faith and all these different things in your life are making your present reality match what he has declared you to be. So that's why I say you are becoming what you already are. You're not slowly becoming like him one day in the future. Flip that timeline around. It's super weird. Flip it around. You started at the end which is being like Jesus, and you're working your way backwards. That's Christianity. So here's what I want, to, want you to do this morning. This is how we're going to pray. We're going to worship together in just a minute. We're going to drill down to the results of our in-Christness. That's the word I just made up. Uh, next Sunday on Easter. But for now, I want you to consider what you've been saved from. What were you like before Jesus? If you grew up in the church, like I did, where would you be without him? I think that's a good exercise to ask God to show you, especially those of you who can't remember not being in church and just, you don't have that testimony. You're like, man, I was terrible, and now I'm great, right? All you got is sort of a slow, you know, like the ups and downs, I was pretty bad, but not that bad, and then I was, you know, okay, and then on fire, and then not, and you're just sort of sloping up, trending upwards, hopefully trending upwards over time. Ask God to show you, like, who would I have been? Knowing what I know about me, where would I have been without you? Consider your own natural inclinations towards sins. What are your favorite sins? That's a terrible way to put it, but you know what I mean. What would they be like without the restraint of God's grace on your life? You know, God's restraining you all the time. You think you're terrible. But what would it be like without the restraint of the Holy Spirit? Allow the Holy Spirit to draw your mind to something very specific that he's rescued you from. And that's where we worship from this morning. Thank God. You saved me. Uh, that guy's dead and gone, toast, no longer breathing, and I've been made a new creation. So you'll see, like when Paul tells us to stop sinning, don't do that. Stop doing this. Stop doing that. He always says, because that's not who you are. You're not being yourself. So yeah, be yourself, just not that dead self. <laughs> Be Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Amen. So why don't we stand together. We're going to pray and worship together. Holy Spirit, I do ask you right now just to give us, each of us, very specific things to be grateful for. 
God, we don't look at our failures and our sin in the past through the lens of our own righteousness, but we look at that through the lens of yours. And all those broken things that we used to be are now testimonies of your greatness. They're testimonies of what you saved us from. They're testimonies of your graciousness and your rescue. So God, we ask you just to stir up gratitude and thankfulness in our hearts as we worship. And God, I pray for anyone that doesn't know you, that only has what Adam gave them, who is living as a slave to their inheritance from Adam, the sin and the death and the destruction and the hopelessness, just the despair of that life. God, I pray that you would turn their eyes towards you. And God, that you would put in their heart an inescapable desire to be in Christ and no longer in Adam. No longer breathing the dust of the earth, no longer living under the weight of the consequences of their sin, but rescued and, God, that you would put them to death at the cross and raise them with you. God, give them faith for that this morning. God, I pray for next week, also, God, that you would uh, just bring people. God, we pray for friends and family that don't know you. God, who maybe have a very moralistic idea of what Christianity is. God, I pray that you would bring them and just gently push them into the deep end of the pool. Just right into grace. God, the overwhelming truth that our identity has been completely changed. Our location has been moved. And we have hope in you. God, I pray that, not just for this morning, but for next week too. In the name of Jesus, amen.